Father, we um, help us to be so very grateful that in a world of a lot of information coming at us, a lot of sound bites, a lot of, a lot of slogans, a lot of uh, best practices and tips, God, some of them very helpful and very good. A lot of them contradictory, some of them just absolute foolishness, but posing as wisdom, that into that you speak. And so, God, might your word come with the sort of authority of which it is due, that it is not merely ink on a page, but, but the living and active word of God by which our souls are nourished and our lives are transformed, by which the dead live, by which the broken get mended, by which the discouraged find hope, of which the distracted find purpose. So we come to this text, God. I ask that through the work of the Spirit, you would translate it into exactly what each and every one of our hearts needs. This text for some, I pray, is a deep affirmation. It's an encouragement to them. This text for others, God, I do ask that it would be a rebuke that would call them out and call me out. And for many of us, God, it will probably do both. It will both affirm and confront. And as you do that, that is your kindness to us that we might know how to to live in a way that makes a difference and brings glory to you in a world that needs it. What we need more than anything else and something we pray every single week as a church is that as we gather in this place, what we need most is to leave more impressed and more sure, more confident in what Christ has done and what he promises to do. So we ask that through the Spirit, you might lift Jesus up, that our hearts might be drawn after him, and that you would keep him so loud to us in this coming week until we get to gather back together to remind ourselves that Jesus is living, that Jesus is real, that Jesus is returning. It's in King Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? This is Jesus speaking. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would, have left, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom this master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not know, 
and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Feel free to grab a seat. Oh, there's a lot in this text, isn't there? Kind of like, well, that started good. It kind of took a turn. Let me give you what it's talking about because I think it'll be a helpful lens as we walk through uh, this parable and some of the commentary on this parable. This parable that's told by Jesus is about this servant and these masters and, or the, these servants and this master and this master return is speaking of Jesus when he returns. There's a point at which Jesus is coming back to bring to completion all that he has begun to bring his kingdom to, to reign. And this parable is talking about that event when Jesus returns. And, and Jesus returning is actually one of the loudest themes in what's known as the New Testament, the last third of the Bible, the last 27 books. The New Testament has 260 chapters. Christ's return is mentioned more than 318 times in those chapters. Out of the 27 books that make up the New Testament, there's only three of them that don't mention the return of Christ at least one time, the book of Galatians, and then two really small books, 2 John and 3 John. Here's the key question that Luke, the author of, of the, the words that we're reading here, puts to us. He's saying, when Christ returns, or we could add it this way, when you die, if you die before Christ returns, how will he find you? What will he find you doing? What will be the condition of your life? What will you have been living for? I could say, what have you been living against? This parable, what it will do, is, among many things, and this is where I'll focus, is it provides a, a framework for how to engage with that question, kind of, kind of three handles for, for how to live in light of Christ's return. And I'll say this a few times, but I'm not going to give you a lot of really practical you know, ground level ways of doing this. I'll give you a few illustrations, but this is going to be much more about here's some handles for you to consider. And I'll give you some maybe examples of how it might work out, but they're just examples. But let me give you the handles and then we'll dive into the first one. The three handles are what is your outlook? How does that impact your orientation? And what sort of opportunities does that create? So outlook, orientation, an opportunity. Let's take the first one, Outlook. Last uh, January, not, not um, you know, a few weeks ago, but a year ago, uh, Pete, our community life pastor, and myself, we were traveling back from, from Vegas, which is where you always do pastor's meetings. I'm not sure why. Um, <laughs> Vegas, baby. Um, Vegas. We go, I think it's because it's easy to get there and usually pretty cheap. So we're down in, in Vegas, and we're, we're coming back, and we're, we're flying back to, to Bellingham. And Pete and I, we had a really fruitful meeting. Um, it was really fun. It was enjoyable. We're coming back, and we had a great time. We're having all these great connection. He's a really good friend, been for a long time, sat next to each other on the plane, great conversations. We get off the plane in, um, in Bellingham, and you know, if you've been to that, that airport, very tiny, so you get off the plane, you come in the main terminal, and then you get to 
these glass doors, this kind of double-doored area where it's like they keep the people that are ticketed from the people that aren't ticketed. It's like, you know, it's the secure area and the unsecure area. And as we, we get to these doors with, with Pete, he, he looks forward, and through these glass doors, here's what he sees. He sees his wife, and he sees his two sons waiting for him. And he was going to give me a ride home to my house when we got there. And then I realized, no, I guess I'm taking a cab to get home because your family is here waiting for you. And, and I think at the time, Warren, he's probably like in a little baby carrier. And I, and Emily, I think they're like holding a sign and he's just cheering. It's like, daddy's home. And you see this expression on, on Emmett's face. And he's just like, oh my God, my dad, my dad, my dad. And you see him balancing. He's just excited. And as soon as we walk through these doors, you know, there's just the, the little toddler run and just embraces him. He was so excited. You know why? Because dad is home. I guarantee it was the best moment of his day. The imagery of this text is one of servants who are waiting for their master. They can't wait for him to come home. He's at a, at a wedding, and at this time, um, weddings could last two days or three days or four days. Or, you didn't know. So when someone went away to one, you kind of just said, they'll be here when they're here. And so these, these servants, they're waiting for this master to come home. But waiting can be tough. If you knew Jesus was going to show up right now, it'd be easy. But waiting can be tough. Staying ready is challenging. Imagine how quickly the excitement for little Emmett would have been if our plane was delayed four hours. Imagine how Rachel would have felt with two little kids in the airport trying to wrangle for four hours. What if it was four days? What if the delay was four days? At some point, you're dropping the sign. You're like, whatever, we'll go back home. We're not waiting. You can take an Uber. <laughs> How about like four years? Then you send the search committee. It's like, where's my husband? Waiting's tough. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus spoke these words. It's coming at a time you don't know, but it's been 2,000 years. Years since Jesus told this story, it's so easy to stop looking. It's so easy to get bored and not be ready. It's been 2,000 years, but I think that's the point. Robert Murray McShane, a, a Scottish pastor, he was asked this question. Someone came up to him and said, do you think Jesus will come back tonight? And his response was this, no, I think he could come back sooner. Do you think that? Like now. In the first service, the mic popped right then, so it was really dramatic. The focus of the parable isn't to nail down the timing of Jesus' return. You know, I, I, the focus of the Bible when it talks about Christ coming back is not to try to, to, to give us some sort of mathematical formulas that we can poach headlines and try to do all the, 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 the crazy gymnastics to try to prove that Jesus is coming back on this day according to the Mayan calendar in the book of Leviticus. Like, that's not the Bible's goal when it talks about Jesus coming back. The goal of the Bible is to say, be ready whenever he comes. Just be ready. It's how to live until he does, how to stay, as this text says, dressed for action. The unexpected nature of 
his return. And that's the language of this thief at night. Like, it, it's, it, it just happens. You didn't plan it. You didn't know it was going to happen. The point of that is to create a sort of urgency, an immediacy, an always readiness with how we live. And here's where it starts. What are you looking at? What's your outlook? I think about pregnancy. If you've ever been pregnant or maybe, um, uh, I was going to say, or your you know, friends are pregnant, but, but what happens when, when you get pregnant is that you eventually, you go to a doctor or a midwife or somebody and you, and you find out, you get this thing called, they do some sort of formula and they say, here is your due date. You get this date on the calendar that says the baby's coming on this day. And you begin to live backwards from that date. You begin to do things like start, you start to uh, say, okay, we need to like get a crib or a bassinet or something. So you begin to do that. You, you know, people begin to plan um, showers and things. They, the baby showers, they're going to bring a bunch of onesies and diapers and all sorts of stuff. You say like at some point, I'm going to have to raise a little human. I should probably read a book on parenting. And so you start to, to read a book on parenting that once you have kids, you realize there's no help. And so like you, you're doing all this, this work and, and you're worrying and you're nervous and you're praying and you're excited and maybe, you know, if you're, if you're the type of people that did, like found out the gender, then you might paint the nursery. You, you know, you get everything as ready as you can, but it still feels a way off until you get to the point that you realize due dates are just mere suggestions, right? It's not exact. Babies can come at almost any point. Now, now sadly, sometimes they come really early with lots of challenges that come with that. But oftentimes, I mean, you know, you find out the due date, really, it's kind of like a, a two-week two window on either side. You just don't know. And as those two weeks get closer and closer, what happens? You're, you just get a little bit more ready, a little bit higher alert for um, our oldest daughter, Emma. She, she went past the due date. Oh, you talk about being ready, right? The bag is packed. It's at the foot of the bed. If you, if you can, if you, know, you travel for work, typically you stop all your travel. You, you do everything you can to be fully aware and fully alert and fully reachable wherever you are all the time because it could happen at any moment. Owen, when he was, um, when my wife was pregnant with Owen, his due date was around a wedding that I was asked to do. I just remember prepping the couple. I was like, hey, if he doesn't come before your wedding, just know I'm not showing up if my wife's in labor. So we had like a backup pastor. Could happen at any time. Pregnancy is one of the best ways to think about the return of Jesus. We live in a due date moment. The moment's always pregnant with the expectation of Christ's arrival. The imminence of Emma's birth, it changed the way we live distinctly. The return of Christ is meant to do the same. Well, let me say this, not even the same, so much more. The master's coming back. How will he find us? What will he find us occupied with? Text says, for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You don't know when it's going to happen. So the, the, the message of this text is this, be ready. I made a very bold prediction, a very wrong prediction back in the fall. It was bold and wrong. Um, and I've never been so glad to be wrong. And it was this, the Seahawks will only win three games max. 
They're not, there's no way. They're not going to win. They, you know, they lost their franchise quarterback. There's no way they're going to be good at all. I'd never been more excited to be wrong in my life. Geno Smith, who took over for them, won, I think, nine games. You know, we won nine games, right, because we're part of it. And so we won nine games. We went to the playoffs because Geno Smith was able to enter in and, and, and play. And there's not a lot of pieces with it. I know it's not all him. But he captured the phrase, next man up, perfectly. He was ready. He'd been drafted out of college and he was a starter for the Jets and after a year or two of not performing well or performing at the level they needed and we could blame the Jets for it, whatever. But, but he, he, was, he was placed as a backup. And then he got traded to another team where he was again the backup. And then he got traded to the, to the Hawks where he was again a backup. Imagine you spend a decade of your life not on the field. It's really hard to do the work to stay ready. But the reason he could do what he could do is he, he stayed ready. He stayed dressed for action. He was ready to go. When the call came, he was ready to step on the field. He had the right outlook. It could happen at any moment. Like I told you, I won't give you a ton of like, here's how to do this. I'm just going to give you one, one idea of how you might keep the return of Christ really loud. Is start your day, end your day with how the Bible ends. There's a promise and a prayer at the very end of the Bible. The last promise is this from King Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. And then the very last prayer of the Bible, the church responds this way, come Lord Jesus. That little tweak alone, something to get the return of Christ and his imminence loud to us. Every single, whatever it is, the outlook, what do you see? Orientation. Stay dressed and ready for action. I love the um, more literal translation of, of that. If you have the ESV, it's like a little footnote. I'll say it in the bottom of, of the page there. It's let your loins stay girded. There's just something meatier about it. I mean, technically, because the loins are like the meaty part of the legs, right? I mean, that's, it's like this idea of you, you would wear a long robe, and if you were a servant, and there was something heavy to carry, or there was someone to wait upon, you know, when you waited at the table, the tables were down towards the ground, people kind of lay sideways on the ground. You didn't want your robe getting in the, the wine. You don't want it, you know, dragging the hummus across the table. And so what you would do, <laughs> whatever. All right, so you take the bottom of the robe and you would tie it up and you would tuck it into your belt and it was a way to visualize to everybody, I'm ready to serve. There was nothing in the way. A few weeks back, I, I think I... I mentioned this um, saga of my washer and dryer being stuck up on the second floor. They'd broken, and I needed to get them down the stairs, and, and so they were stuck up there. What I was hoping is that someone would have volunteered to come help me move them. That didn't happen, but, but I do have to, I'm just joking, I would, um, but my son helped me. So eventually, we, uh, we, we tried, couldn't figure it out, tried another technique, borrowed some like forearm straps, which, you know, move, but we couldn't figure those out, and so then I found um, this harness that you put on your shoulders, and it's got like a little wench system attached to it. And so both my son and I grabbed this, and we grabbed this thick nylon strap. And this was, you know, to move tons of stuff. And you, you attach it to one another, and you put it under the washer, and then you stand up. And I remember telling my son, I was like, hey, just so you know, as I walk backwards down this thing, if we don't do this right, and I start to fall, we both go. So, so like, take this, because it's like we're attached to each other, buddy. And we're going to do a big somersault all the way down the stairs, and we die. And that's... <laughs> because I want them to be ready. 
I could trip at any moment. You know what we did, though, before we started? Like, you make sure your shoe's tied. You make sure there's nothing on the stairs. You make sure the carpet that's at the bottom of the stairs that when you step on, you always pull your hamstring. That thing's gone, you know, because it slips. You're ready. You're ready. That's what this text is. Are you ready? Have you removed the distractions? Are you focused on the right thing? Is your life built in such a way that it's revolving around this truth? A lot of you have probably heard and, and maybe applied, and I think helpfully so, priority lists in terms of your, your, your lives and your connection with God and your other responsibilities, like God first. If you're married, you know, my, my wife or my husband second. If you have kids, you know, my, my kids third, you know. Then you say, like, okay, does church or career go next? You know, you kind of go through the list of, like, here's my prayers. I think it can be helpful. Let me offer to you, I think, what is maybe a more helpful way to think about orientation. I think, think solar system. Think mass and gravity. The more that the return of Christ becomes loud to us, the larger it takes center stage in our imagination, the more our life will rightly orbit around it. Our, our abilities, our skills, our dreams, our desires that they begin to find their proper location around this truth that King Jesus, the master's coming. What do I do Tuesday afternoon? What do I do Friday morning? What do I do with my money? What do I do with my gifts? How does that change my dreams and my passions and my desires? I love how John Piper talks about getting the right thing at the center of the, this, this one big thing that shapes everything else in his book, Don't Waste Your Life. He says it like this, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world, but you do have to know a few great things that matter, perhaps just one, and then be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by one great thing. If I was going to apply this text in light of that quote, I'd say this, mastered by the master. Mastered by the one great king. Mastered by the reality that, 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 that he is real and he is coming. Saw a framed quote in one of my buddy's offices a week or two ago from C.S. Lewis, and he said this, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Let me say that again. Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance, the only thing it cannot be is moderately important. One of the things that happens to us, and this is by well-meaning, myself included, by by well-meaning followers of Christ, is we just get distracted. Christ gets pushed off to the margins the reality of his reality just becomes unreal. And we occupy and we live and we act as if this is it. And texts like this are really good reorienting opportunities to say, no, he's coming. How will he find me? If I took Lewis's quote and maybe applied it more directly to Jesus, if Jesus isn't real, he's of no importance. If he is real, he's of infinite importance. The only thing he cannot be is moderately important. He's the master. Stay dressed for action, be ready. And then this little phrase, keep your lamps burning. And one of the questions you might ask is like, what does it mean to keep your lamps 
burning. It would have uh, been nighttime. It's the second watch or the third watch of the night. And the only reason you would have your lamps burning, you'd be consuming oil, is that it's nighttime. It wouldn't have been day. There's no need for the lamps. So we might say, well, is Jesus saying don't sleep? Like stay awake all the time. Of course not. He knows we're finite. We can't do everything. It's okay. It's right. It's not just okay. It's good. God made us with limits. I believe what he's saying is stay spiritually alert. Don't let the truth of who he is and all he's done and what he promises to do and the kingdom that's coming, don't let that, don't, don't, don't go dim on that. Stay spiritually awake. One of my jobs in high school was uh, working at Baskin and Robbins, uh, serving ice cream. It's a pretty fun job, uh, making $3.25 an hour. And um, some of you are like, I made 38 cents an hour. I know, I know. Um, but uh, working at Baskin and Robbins, winter time comes. And when you work in an ice cream shop in North Seattle in the winter, it's not very busy. There's not a whole lot to do. You might get someone like every hour and a half or so. And you'd have these like four to six hour shifts. And you try to find what are you going to And this was before like phones, right? So I couldn't like, I mean, we had phones, but, but iPhones that you could actually do something on. And so you would sit there and you'd be like, okay, what do I do? And so one of the things we were told to do is to practice scooping ice cream. So you would practice scooping ice cream. You had two different size scoopers because there was like a small scoop and then you had like a regular scoop and each of those was supposed to weigh a certain amount. So we had a little scale and we would practice. You put a piece of, of uh, parchment or something down and you'd scoop some ice cream on, you'd weigh it and then you'd scoop another kind. And here's why you did it. It wasn't just size. Different ice cream has different densities, like the ones with nuts in them. Those are heavier than the ones with marshmallows. And you get like daiquiri ice, which you should never get. It's disgusting. But, but don't send me hate mail. It's disgusting. But that's really, really dense. And so it's heavier. And so, you know, you practice your scooping. But after you've done this enough, you know black walnut, you know what that's going to weigh, right? You just know. And you know what it tastes like. But that's why it's always there. And so you practice... <laughs> You practice scooping, right? So after you get good at like scooping, then you go like, what else am I going to do? And so you do some stuff. So what I tried one time, I know I shouldn't have done it, but we had this massive walk-in freezer where they kept all the old tubs of ice cream. And I was thinking about the movie A Christmas Story. And there's this scene in the movie Christmas Story, and they're in this frigid uh, Michigan winter, and they're outside. These two friends are outside in the playground, and one of them says, hey, my old man says, if you stick your tongue to a railroad track, it'll freeze instantly. He's like, your old man's dumb. And he says, well, I dare you. I double dog dare you. Give him the double dog dare. And he's now all these friends around. There's this pole sitting there. He says, I'm, all right, fine. I'll stick my tongue to it. So I decided to reenact that. I wanted to see how fast it was going to take to make my tongue stick to a walk-in freezer. And so I did. So I walked into the freezer and I went up to this rack and I stuck my tongue out. And I'm so dumb that I did it. So that's part one. But I'm also so dumb, I didn't bring any like warm water with me in case it actually worked. Let me spare you your own experimentation. It works instantly. It was instant. My tongue got on that thing. It was stuck so fast. And I'm like, no one's coming in because it's winter for like two hours. What am I going to do? And so I said, all right, it's rip it off now or be stuck forever. I went back a number of years later, and there's a still little part of my tongue in the freezer, which I felt really good. I left my mark on that job. <laughs> usually what I would do, though, you know, usually what I'd do during the winter, I'd just lean against the counter and do nothing. I'd do nothing. One of the most helpful things ever um, was when the owner showed up unexpectedly. I'm doing nothing. I'm just leaned against the counter. 
He comes and he's like, Rob, why are you bleeding everywhere? He didn't. It wasn't when I ripped my tongue off. Um, he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, nothing. There's nothing to do. I've done it all. And he was, this, was, this was really good. He said, hey, come here for a second. Come out from behind the counter. He says, I want you to walk through the front doors as if you're a customer. What do you see? Oh, I guess there's a napkin on the ground over here. I didn't see that. Oh, there's a little bit of ice cream being spilled down the front of the counter. Hey, I want you to push all the chairs in. Oh, man, this one's kind of sticky right here. Oh, look at the garbage. Oh, I guess it's getting kind of full. Hey, let's, why don't you go look at the bathroom? What do you see? Hey, let's go out to the parking lot. Let's look around the parking lot. Oh, I guess, yeah, there's like a cigarette butt right here, and there's like an old plastic spoon over here, and I guess there's some weeds right here in the garden I could get. And what was great is my boss, he, I'll give you that as a side tip, what a great experience as a 15-year-old. Man, that stuck with me forever. But, but, but he wasn't shaming me. He was trying to help me. What he was saying is, I, I want you to look different. I want you to orient yourself different so that you see there's always work to do. There's always something to engage with. In light of this text, do this. Set your, your eyes on this reality. Jesus is coming back. And then do this. Orient your entire life around that truth. There are a number of verses in this text that are deeply motivating um, to maintain a Jesus returning outlook and to practice a Jesus-oriented lifestyle. If I was going to summarize the motivation, and I'll just give you a couple of points in these verses, I would say it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to be blessed by the master himself, verse 37. It's an opportunity to know that you're living wise and faithfully, verse 42. It's an opportunity to make a real impact in the lives of others. See, there was this person set over the master's household that was supposed to distribute to all the other people. You're making real difference for real people. And then he goes on and says, those that do it well will get the opportunity to do more of it, to make a grander and greater legacy. There's so much opportunity in this text. And I want to try to link these three handles, outlook, orientation, opportunity, with the true story from what is, for many people, a really well-known sermon from over 20 years ago. John Piper preached a sermon on May 20th, year 2000, which is probably his most famous, some would say infamous, sermon ever. He was at, I think it was the fourth, what was known as a passion conference. It was a gathering of young adults, like 18 to 24-year-olds, that would go annually. And so he showed up at this thing, and there was 40,000 40,000 young people at this place. And he began to preach this sermon, which later became a book called Don't Waste Your Life. And the thing that most people remember about the sermon, and I I share this with a bit of trepidation, so hang with me because we're going to nuance it a little bit, but I want you to get the punch of it, okay? Is what most people remember, if you've heard this sermon, if you've read that book, is this contrast between two pairs of people. He talks about this one group of people, both in their 80s, one of them a nurse, one of them a doctor, uh, Ruby Eliasson and Laura Edwards, and they had spent their life serving the poor in Africa. One of them had been married for a number of years, but, had, but was recently well. The other one had never gotten married, and the story that, that Piper shares is them still in their 80s, still serving in Africa in the name of Jesus, and they're driving an old beat-up car, and the brakes stop working. And as they get to a corner and they get to the edge of a cliff, the brakes are gone. And their car shoots off the cliff and they fall to their death. They fly off a cliff in Cameroon and both of them go into heaven 
and meet Jesus in their 80s after a lifetime of serving the poor in his name. And he shares about another couple. And I think he got the story of this from like the back of Reader's Digest or something, like a Reader's Digest. And he read about this story about this couple in their 50s who was able to retire early and then they moved down to Florida to devote themselves in the, the words of this article and how Piper used it, the reality of it, I don't know. To devote themselves to collecting shells and softball and captaining their 30-foot yacht. So he sets up these two couples and then he, he asks this question. He asks this question to 40,000 students and he says this. He says, okay, was the death of these two servants of Christ entering heaven in their 80s through a car crash a tragedy? Was that a waste? And the whole congregation of 40,000 students cry out, no. And then the sentence that 20 years later, I still remember, that probably if you've read the book, you heard the the sermon, you might remember is, is Piper going and saying this, was it a tragedy? I'll tell you what a tragedy is. Two healthy 50-somethings wasting their lives collecting shells. That's a tragedy. And then he gives this picture of Jesus coming back, and what are you going to stand before me? Look, Jesus, here are the shells that I gathered for you in the last 20 years of my God-given life. That's a waste. All right. That should sting a bit, but here's what I want to do with it. And why I was hesitant to share it is because God has used it in a couple of ways in my life and a number of others. See, that could create a massive amount of shame and a massive amount of guilt. So we might ask it this way, is Piper right? Is that a tragedy? Is it a tragedy to retire early? And instead of a a life of serving the the global poor in another country to devote yourself to, to, to leisure? I mean, if we set it up that way, perhaps, but is that even Piper's point? Was Piper point like, Piper, say that three times. Piper picked up, like, is, <laughs> we just need a little levy. Is, is that the point? Is the point like shells are bad? No. And rest is bad and sand is bad and sailing is bad. No. I don't think that's even Piper's main point. See, he was trying to, to illustrate, actually, no, most people don't even know the verse he was actually talking about. He was talking about Galatians 6.14. His whole sermon was about this. He said, here's what I want for you young people. And he would say, this is what I want for all people. But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He's saying, you're living for another world. So live for that world now. Whatever that looks like. I really believe Piper was doing the same thing Jesus is using in this text, which does have some strong language to wake us up. If Jesus is real, if his cross is real, if his return is real, then everything changes. But I would suggest to you, the way this gets lived out is much more art than science. You have the right outlook. Oh, Jesus is coming back. You have the right orientation. My life is built around him and for him. And the right opportunity, oh, I could play in a lot of spaces to make a difference for Christ. But the way that gets worked out See, this is where we step in a ditch. This is where we really mess up when I tell you this is how it's supposed to work out for you. I'm trying to figure out how it's supposed to work out for me and my family. The point of this text is to invite you to consider how it might work out for you to do that in community, to do that before the word of God. And so we partly see this in in Peter's question, Lord, are you telling this parable for us all? 
Is it just for us? Is it for us all? And Jesus never answers the question. He just lets it hang in the air. And then Jesus goes on. He never actually gives the answer to exactly what it means. He gives these handles. Stay dressed and ready for action. Stay, stay, stay usable. Stay, stay spiritually alert. Know that I'm coming back. But he never says this is exactly what to do. And I would suggest to you, I think it's even better. Here's why I think it's better. Because often what we want is the list to check when what he wants is our lives. And once he gets that, everything follows. Give you a couple examples of how it can look like. I was just down in Oceanside, California with seven other lead pastors. I'm part of this cohort. We get together twice a year to encourage each other, to do like co-coaching with each other, help each other solve problems, to pray for each other. And one of the things that is most moving to me about those experiences is getting to hear the stories of how people ended up in the spots they're in. And so one of my, one of my buddies who's a pastor, been a pastor for, I think about 25 years, maybe almost 30 years now, he used to be a lawyer. And I asked him, how, do you, how, how did you shift from being a lawyer to being a pastor? And he says, well, I was practicing law and, and I just began to feel this sense that I was supposed to become a pastor. And so I began to look at it. And at that time, I was like, you go to seminary, that's what you do. So I started looking at seminary and I found out it was going to be four years. And I remember having this moment of like, wait a second, I just finished three years of law school. Now I got to go do four years of like more schooling. But he goes, then I thought about it and I go, isn't Jesus worth that extra year? Now, he also just took up fly fishing. Okay, so I don't want you to hear like, oh, all he does is that. No, he, he took up fly fishing. He loves fly fishing. He loves to travel. He loves, like, for him, that's what it looks like. Another buddy that was down there, um, he's, he's pastoring a place that is really messing with his allergies, which might sound like, hey, just take like a, I don't know, Claritin or something, right? But for him, it's creating a response in his eyes that's actually beginning to do damage to his, to his cornea. It's actually starting to degrade his cornea, and the doctors recently told him that we, we think it, it potentially could be genetic, but oftentimes this is environmental, and the place you're in is, is setting off your allergies, is creating a bodily response, which is attacking your cornea, you're going blind. And so one of the things he said, hey, would you guys pray for me that I wouldn't go blind? And maybe pray, am I supposed to stay where I am, or maybe move someplace where I don't go blind? And we all said, we have a word from the Lord. You're supposed to move to a place where you're not supposed to. But, but here's what I want you to hear. You hear the heart of it. Jesus is worthy. He's saying, oh, goodness, the king is coming back, and I'd rather be blind before the king than squander my life. Whatever it looks like for a minute. And I'm not telling you this because you're supposed to go to seminary. Some of you should. You're supposed to go. Some of you should. Some of you should go plant churches. Some of you... But here's what I'm inviting you to, to see how does your life intersect with this text. It could look like serving the, the under-housed in our community. It could look like visiting those that are in prison and, 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 and thrown away by our society. It could, it could look like fostering or adopting. It could look like just doing your job well to the glory of Christ as his ambassadors. It could look like loving your neighbors. It could look like coaching. It could look like volunteering in any capacity. It could look like teaching. It, could, it can look like a whole lot of things. One commentary I read said, the point of this parable is to keep us on our toes. You know, my, my, I suppose, I suppose, but I don't know if that's the, I don't know if that's the goal. I don't know if it's supposed to be this, like, Jesus is coming back, therefore be anxious and afraid because he might show up at any moment. Oh, am I a servant? Have I done enough? No, none of us have. 
But am I waiting? Am I, am I ready? Do I care? Do I want him to come back? Like, even the harsh language of this text, and we'll get into more of this in the coming weeks, because I don't want to bypass it, but I don't have enough time to dive into, you know, someone's chopped in pieces. There's a harsh beating, a light beating, you know, like, we'll get into to some of what that means, but even that, even the sharpness of that language, what if Jesus meant it not more as this ominous threat, but more like smelling salts to wake us up from our spiritual apathy? What if what he wanted to do is to get us to realize we have a God-given destiny? And we don't want to miss it. Dr. Karen Wyatt is a family doc, and she spent much of her career as a hospice medical director. She wrote a book a number of years ago, a few years ago, called Seven Lessons from the Dying. And the book begins with a statement from a guy named Ted who was just a few days from dying, and he said this. He said, I've only just learned what really matters in life now that I'm at the time of my death. Why didn't I know this earlier? Jesus in his kindness, for all of us that would listen, is saying you don't have to wait to know. You don't have to wait to know what to live for. You don't have to wait to know what to hope in. You don't have to wait to know how to orient your life. You don't have to wait to know what opportunities you can sow into, the legacies that you can make to the glory of King Jesus and the flourishing of the people around you. don't have to wait. Oh, if Jesus is real, if Jesus is not real, he is of no importance. But if he's real and he's returning, that's of infinite importance. Let's just not let him be of moderate importance. This parable invites us, and I'll end with this, invites us to be faithful in our service to King Jesus, to be ready, to not waste our lives, to steward them well, to make a difference for our joy, for his glory. But it also shows us uh, something else, or really I would say someone else. And I would suggest to you that in all the other stuff in this text of people getting chopped up and beaten, the most shocking thing in this entire passage comes in verse 37. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. Let me, let me reread it by putting Jesus in there where he rightfully is in these he statements and them statements, all those things, just so you, so you get the, the, the stunning reality of what this is saying. Blessed are those servants whom Jesus finds awake when Jesus comes. Truly I say to you, Jesus will dress himself for service and have us, his servants, recline at table and Jesus will come and serve us. A master would never do that. But that's what King Jesus does. See, this is talking most rightfully about when Jesus returns and we're gonna enter into something called the marriage supper of the Lamb. A marriage that doesn't just go two days or three days or four days. Not a celebration that goes Eternally, where the wine will flow, where the food will be fantastic, where all the, the joys, the greatest joys that you could possibly even imagine, not even that you've tasted, you will receive in the presence of King Jesus. Now, I share the story about Emmett seeing Pete and being so excited to see him. You know what? Pete was so excited to see Emmett. It was the best moment of his day too. When Jesus comes back, when the master comes back with such joy as he girds up and he dresses himself, the same language, he, he puts the robe in such a way and he gets down and he serves his, his church, he serves his people. 
And that promise is so sure, you know why? Because he already did it. He's already served. Not just dressed to service, but actually, if you go to the the gospel, the good news of how Christ claims any of us uh, indifferent servants and rebellious servants and distracted servants and servants that haven't done all the good they should do and so often do the knucklehead things they shouldn't do. You know what the promise is hinged on? The fact that he already served as a suffering servant who wasn't dressed for action but was stripped naked and then beaten, not lightly who took the blows that we deserve and and then went to a cross where, where he was literally cut off. Cut off before the Father so that we might be brought in, not through our serving, but through our trusting in what he had done. See, that's the thing that'll really melt your heart to say, Jesus is worth it. Oh, Jesus is worth me orienting my life around. Jesus is worth me architecting who I am, stewarding my gifts so I could go before the one that gave everything. Oh, the king came for rebellious servants. It wasn't even like we were just great. And he gave everything. So we might receive what he had earned so that we might be welcomed in in ways we cannot imagine. See, that's the thing is our serving comes after his serving. Our work comes after his work. What do we need more than that to live this way? Isn't he worthy? Isn't he worthy? Let the smelling salts of this text wake all of us up. Isn't he worthy? Oh, be affirmed where you're doing it. Oh, goodness, the master sees. Isn't he worthy? Don't face the end and say, oh, I wish I would have done it different. Isn't he worthy? Undoubtedly, he is. Oh, if Jesus isn't real, who cares? But he is real, and he is returning. And that's kind of the only thing that matters. Let's just not let him be moderately important. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I ask that through the Spirit, you would apply this text and apply these truths in a way, God, that simultaneously somehow comforts us and disturbs us. The goal of this is to not, first and foremost, for us to go do more for us to sacrifice more, for us to pledge more, for us to promise more. God, is to see what Christ has done. And out of that place, and out of this posture of who he is and what he promises to do and that he is coming back, God, that we wouldn't live on eggshells. We wouldn't be walking around in pins and needles trying not to make him mad. But we want to welcome him home to a warm house with the lights on, hearts ready to receive him. Knowing that we've spent the time that you've given us to do his work in this world for the glory of his name and the joy of all peoples. 
In our master's name we pray, amen.